Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. One of the most common concerns regarding the laws changing around psychedelic-assisted therapy comes down to access. More specifically, will the people in communities that could benefit the most, those who have potentially experienced the most trauma, be able to afford or get access to psychedelic-assisted therapy? That's what makes this episode and my special guest so important. We're going to discuss how a psychedelic therapy clinic based in Oakland, California, is providing specialized therapy and support for people of color and people with diverse gender identities. You'll learn how their innovative approach to therapy is making a significant difference in the healing of this community. How what's happening at Doorways could potentially serve as a model of psychedelic-assisted therapy for other types of marginalized or specialized communities, and what we can all do to ensure the people who could benefit the most from psychedelic therapy actually get access to it. Let me introduce you to Courtney Watson, who is blazing trails with her important and very unique approach to psychedelic-assisted therapy. Welcome to this episode of the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's session is Psychedelic Assisted Therapy and Its Healing Potential for BIPOC and LGBTQ Communities. Joining me is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for a long time, Courtney Watson. Courtney is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified sex therapist. In addition to several other degrees, she holds a master's of education in human sexuality and is currently completing her doctorate in human sexuality at Widener University. She's also trained in psychedelic assisted therapy through CIIS, MDMA therapy with MAPS, and ketamine therapy with Polaris. And she is the founder of a really inspiring group practice called Doorway Therapy services that focuses on addressing mental health needs of Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer folks, transgender, non-conforming, binary, and two-spirit individuals. On top of that, I just found out she's a mom. She's a very busy woman, and I'm especially grateful you've made time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you for inviting me. The focus of the work at Doorways is so inspiring. The more I hear about it, the more excited I am for what you've created. Would you share a little bit more about that, about your team, the clients you work with, and the services that you provide? So when I started my training, I was one of three Black folks in a cohort of like 90. And I felt the fact that I was one of three Black folks. And when we were training, there was ways that I was thinking about implementing the medicine that I felt was very unique to my experience as a Black person. 
And I got the sense that the people that I wanted to serve would not necessarily be the target client for the people that were training us, for the people that were teaching us how to do this work. And so I already had a group practice that was like, here's this gap. I'm in the position to fill this gap in general therapy, and I'm in the same position to fill this gap in psychedelics because the same gap exists. And so Doorways is a place where we get to be who we are with all of our identities, whether that's queer, whether that's Black, whether that's BIPOC, whether that's Indigenous, whether that's Korean, whatever our identities are, and bring that to the healing space with clients that have similar, it's not the same lived experience or identities. And there's some things that just don't need to be explained in that space. There's some harms that don't occur in that space. And it's a a gap that must be filled for all of us to truly heal. And so it was very clear to me that that was work that I needed to do because I was in a position to do it. It's really great. And how many therapists or mental health practitioners are on your team? You know, it kind of fluctuates. We're between 20 and 25 therapists, physicians, and nurses. I tend to have Nurses come in and out, physicians come on board, some therapists are more part-time, more full-time, more contract, and it it really holds a place of flow and ease. I always tell my staff, like, you're not supposed to make your life fit around doorways. Doorways is supposed to fit around your life. So that means that people come in as it works for them, and then we match clients based on that. There's about 20 to 25 of us that are predominantly queer, predominantly BIPOC clinicians, physicians, and nurses that are serving predominantly queer, predominantly BIPOC clients. That's amazing. You've got a really diverse team serving a really diverse base of clients and patients. And I'm just curious, in your opinion, like how important is it for people of color or people with diverse identities to work with healthcare professionals who are from those communities? I personally think it's extremely important. One example is there was someone that just had a baby and she kept on patting her head. And she had a team of people that were not Black. And they saw her patting their head. And so they said that she needs to do a mental health psych evaluation because there had to have been something wrong because she just kept on patting her head because she had this baby. And then there was a Black nurse that was on staff and she was like, oh, she's patting her head because her head is itching. And so this Black woman who just had a child almost had to have a mental health psych evaluation because her head was itching because there was a cultural nuance that was missed. Not to say that that is what would happen in a therapy session, but I think that that's an example of how important it is to have a provider that understands the cultural context because harm can happen and not harm that is like intentional or malicious. It was clearly just not knowing about the way that Black women pat their heads when they have braids, but it could have been harmful because this woman that just had a baby was going to have to go through the process of having psych evaluation. And would there be a hospitalization that happened after that? So yeah, just knowing a culture, knowing a community, avoiding microaggressions or macroaggressions, avoiding assumptions is really important, especially when we're talking about psychedelics. That level of cultural sensitivity and cultural nuance really informs your therapy work. I see on your website, you describe your approach as intersectional, queer, and post-colonial feminist theories with an applied social justice lens, and that the therapy you provide really is informed by the needs of the client. That's huge. I'll break it down by, by pieces. Like, intersectionality is the idea that 
we all have marginalized identities and we all have spaces of privilege. And there's ways that that can be layered. There are some folks that are more marginalized. There are some folks that are more privileged. A Black woman has a different experience than a Puerto Rican man, right? Even though most both might be seen as people of color. A dark-skinned Black woman has a different experience than a fair-skinned Black woman because there's colorism and surprise privilege. And so intersectionality looks at multiple sites of marginalization and, like, really tries to account for how to bring in equity for those different pieces, how to bring in safety for those different pieces. Queer, because I'm queer, you know, queer is not as heteronormative. Heteronormativity has this idea of male and female, and this is, like, the default. Also, there's, like, this pushback with queering the space around cis normativity, the idea that someone that is assigned female at birth is automatically a woman or someone that's assigned male at birth is automatically a male. It queer pushes against different, like, relationship configurations as well. Queer brings in different relationship configurations in terms of, like, if it's a poly family, it allows space for kinkiness. And so there's all these different sites and places around people's sexuality, whether that's sexual identity, sexual orientation, or the way that they express themselves sexually, that gets to be held in a space. And that post-colonial feminism looks at the realities of colonization and the impact of the realities of colonization on women. It can show the ways that the colonial patriarchy impacts women. And so it's this broad way of looking at all of these different pieces of support that people need and like bringing that into the therapeutic context with the social justice lens. That's brilliant. And I really get the sense you're not looking at the people that come in as just having sort of typical labels of depression or anxiety. You're taking in all of these intersections of their experience and in really considering all of that when you're treating people. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that the beautiful thing about the way that we hold the space is that it doesn't just benefit people of color. It doesn't just benefit queer folks. It benefits cishet white folks as well. Like, what if someone has an invisible disability, you know? And like, how are we holding that? Because we're able to understand that there's nuance and complexity to marginalization, to oppression. What if someone grew up in poverty? And so maybe the way that they're seen is as this certain projection based on our ideas of like what a white woman is supposed to look like. But there's this whole history that we also get to account for when we hold space in the room. Mm -hmm. So what's beautiful about the way that we do work is even though we prioritize working with queer folks and people of color, we actually serve everyone and we serve everyone because of the place that we come from in Mm -hmm. a way that some folks just aren't. That's inspiring. And that sounds very skillful. And in addition to that level of therapy, you also offer ketamine therapy for your clinic. So I'm curious, how did you get introduced to psychedelics and what really motivated you to bring that into the clinic? Yeah, I had started working with my ancestors and really opening up to hearing the messages, the urges, the pulls, and coincidentally, I was just in a space where wires got crossed and there was someone that was in one of the major psychedelic organizations that was looking for therapists that might be interested in doing psychedelic assisted therapy. And I was like, that sounds cool. I remember learning about that in grad school. I want more information. And he directed me towards Chakruna. He directed me towards Max. I went to a, a conference at Chakruna and that's where CIS was advertising for their new cohort. And then there was just this voice that was like, just wait. 
just wait. Because I, I wanted to leave, honestly. I looked around the room. I was like, I shouldn't be here. It's Saturday. I could go and hang out somewhere else in the city. But I stayed. And I, by the end of that, like very much in my program, when they're giving this data of PTSD, what I'm thinking of is a statistic that I heard a couple of years ago that most Black boys walking around East Oakland have PTSD. So when I see you guys are talking about veterans, I'm thinking about boys in the hood and how ketamine or psilocybin or LSD can help these people, like my community that are suffering because of gun violence, because of living in historically oppressed communities. And I knew I was the only person that was thinking that in that room. And that's why I knew that I had to stay in there. Because when I hear presentations about PTSD, when I hear presentations about depression or anxiety, my thoughts are, I should do an LSD circle with the drug dealers that are on the corner. Like, what would that look like? How could we hold healing in that way? How could I do intergenerational work, bringing in people's mothers who might have had difficulty with substances or whose mothers might have had their children taken away from them because of being targeted by the welfare system or the juvenile justice system or being targeted by CPS? And how can we do repair in those family systems with medicine? And I know that everybody in the room is not thinking that, you know. That is invaluable perspective. And I really acknowledge you for acting on that. And no doubt, as you've been able to offer ketamine therapy in the clinic, I'm sure it's been extremely beneficial for some of your clients coming through there. Can you give any specific examples on that? How have you seen psychedelic assisted therapy be useful for the clients that you're working with, people of color or people with diverse gender identities? So there was an email thread and people are tracking the fact that there are shifts in terms of people's moving into their true gender identity or acceptance of their gender identity or expression of their gender identity as a result of psychedelic work. That is something that I have seen. But I've also witnessed someone coming in and like being able to move into a gender identity that they've always held, but that they had suppressed that was able to like really come up and like be honored in their psychedelic experience and also in the integration sessions as well. And I think to your question about the importance of having someone that has those lived identities in the room, on that same email thread, there was a lot of controversy because someone was saying some really transphobic things, right? Like it's an aspect of psychosis or X, Y, and Z. And I don't want to repeat it because that can be harmful and I don't know if we're going to have trans folks listening. So I don't want to trigger folks. But I think that that is exactly why it's important for us to be in the room because there might be someone that has an experience where their true gender identity emerges in the psychedelic space and then they're told by their provider, oh, that's actually an element of mental health that we need to look at now. That's probably psychosis and you're not actually trans. Wow. So knowing that people of color have been so unfairly targeted by the war on drugs, I'm just curious, How open do you find people from that community are to doing psychedelic therapy? Do you meet a lot of resistance or are people pretty curious about it? I think it depends on the person and I think it depends on their family experience, their lived experience, their social context. I think that there are people who have family members who had issues with substances that are like, I will never touch a thing. Like I've had conversations with people like, that's great. Sounds amazing. That's not for me because X, Y, and Z and my family had difficulty with substance use. I've really thought about it in terms of some of my own family members who have had difficulty with substance use, having conversations about repair work that can actually happen if they were engaged with the substance in a way that was held in a therapeutic space as opposed to numbing out. 
I did a ceremony with a family member with marijuana, so it was legal. But there was a difference in the way that they were using marijuana before and in the ways that we use marijuana in the ceremonial space. And they were like, what was that? I've never experienced it like that before. I don't know what that was. At one point, something lifted off my chest and I just feel lighter. So I, I think that education is so important when it comes to communities of color. And I think that there will be some people that are resistant and some people that will happily dive into it. That is a really interesting point, too, because I also know people who've used certain substances recreationally and then had a chance to do so in more of a therapeutic setting with set and setting and a lot of intention and reported they had a completely different experience. So that's really useful, I think, for people to keep in mind when they're considering whether or not these substances or medicines could be useful for them if people have had recreational experiences. If they have a chance to do it in a clinic or through therapy, it's going to be very, very different. Yeah, and that's not to down like recreational use either. I think that different strokes for different folks at different times and spaces. But I do think that there can be a benefit in being able to explore what does it look like to work with psychedelics or other medicines from a therapeutic and ceremonial lens. Yeah, very true. So there's aspects of psychedelic assisted therapy that are very practical, and it can also be a very transcendent experience for some folks and hard to put into words. And I know for you personally and professionally, your work is really informed by your spirituality and your connection to ancestral work. How important do you think it is for clients or even for therapists to be open to that spiritual element of this work? I want to separate clients and therapists, specifically when I think about the communities that I work in, particularly queer communities, particularly with people that are gender diverse, this trauma is very much the thing. And so we ask our clients what type of experience they want. And if they say that they do not want a ceremonial experience, we will not give that to them because it can be a reenactment of religious trauma. It can trigger like an imposition of religious views, which we don't want to do. I do believe that the therapist needs to know that this is a spiritual experience. So while I might not do a ceremony with a client, I will still do my own ceremony and prepare myself in my own way in order to be able to hold the space in a good way. I'm not saying every therapist has to have a ceremonial space, but every therapist needs to know that this is a spiritual experience. And when I talk to all of the trainers, some of the researchers with psilocybin and MDMA, when I talk to the people that are training, when we ask what is transpersonal psychology really mean, it's spirituality. It's just a way to kind of get distance from that word spirituality. Uh, when you talk about this transcendental experience, I hear a spiritual experience. And spirit doesn't have to be like Protestant Christian. Spirit doesn't have to be Judeo-Christian at all. Spirit can be something else. You know, for me, spirit is like very much of an African and indigenous American orientation. But there's no way that people aren't going to different worlds. There's no way that people aren't going to the spirit world. There's no way that this is just all in their minds. Like people are going places. And as someone that's holding the container, it is so important to hold a tight container so that they're safe in where they're going. If you just give someone some medicine and put them in a chair and don't at all acknowledge that this is a spiritual experience, I think it puts the client at risk in terms of if something comes through. And it also puts the provider at risk because sometimes we pick up stuff from sessions. 
He takes the hell with us from sessions. And you need to be able to clear that out or you're going to be messed up. <laughs> if you're doing 30 sessions, 30 ketamine sessions, and you're not cleaning yourself, you're not holding a tight spiritual container, things in your life are going to start to be a little wonky. Really useful perspective. And speaking of ketamine, I've heard you describe its place in this psychedelic renaissance in a really interesting way. I know some people consider ketamine as kind of a placeholder until MDMA or psilocybin therapy is legalized. But I believe you had an experience or an insight that really helped you appreciate the potential of ketamine. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, I've had this experience where I met the spirit of the medicine. So just in terms of my orientation to spirituality, I believe that everything is sentient. And so there is a spirit to everything because everything had some sort of organic. It was a tree at some point. It was a rock at some point. It was something, a plant. And so the spirit of that organic material can still exist. And ketamine does have organic origins. So that's one aspect of it. But I also just think that every time I work with ketamine, I see the spirit of ketamine in the same she blonde. She's like 19 to 20. She likes to have fun. And I understand why ketamine is a party drug because you like to party. And she's just like very bubbly. And sometimes she can be very serious. Ketamine cannot be refuted as a medicine. She is already FDA approved. And because she also creates an altered state of consciousness, we get to play with off-label use for this medicine that's already FDA approved. It's in the research that we're able to do with ketamine, we get to see that altered states of consciousness actually do have medicinal value. Here's all the research. And that research is not limited by the government because it's already FDA approved. So her role is so important in terms of making medicine and psychedelic experiences as medicine available because it can't be refuted and it can't be limited. That's great. And I love the terminology you used there, paving the way, because I think you mentioned too, you'd almost seen ketamine being like a highway that was down this foundation, this path for the other medicines to follow, which is a really beautiful vision. Okay, this is a big question. And truly, we could spend, I'm sure, an entire podcast episode on this. So I know I'm probably setting you up in a little bit of an unfair way to go through this quickly. But I'm just curious for other therapists or mental health professionals, who are currently offering psychedelic-assisted therapy or who might be offering psychedelic-assisted therapy in the future, and perhaps will be working with clients who are people of color or people who have very diverse gender identities, what are some of the considerations that they could and really should keep in mind if they really want to serve those clients? Are you thinking about therapists that are queer and BIPOC? No, I was thinking people who don't come from those communities. Mm-hmm. What are some of the nuances and considerations that would be helpful for them if they really want to serve those populations? I think you need to be a part of the community. That doesn't mean that you have to hold those identities, but you need to build authentic relationships. So if you want to serve queer folks, you need to actually be in authentic relationship with queer people. You need to be in their house. You need to eat food with them. You need to have them over. You need to be in fellowship so that when something X, Y, and Z happens, if you're a dear friend, you get to see, oh, this is what it looks like when someone hurts my friend this way. Oh, this is the thing that I have to make sure that I do not perpetuate in my therapy session because I really get to see what it's like. 
I get to see the impact because I'm in community with this person. And so the reason that I say like an authentic relationship instead of an extractive relationship is because some people will say, okay, so I need to find a couple of friends and then I need to have them over. I need to ask them a bunch of questions about their experience and then I'll know. I'm talking about deep, meaningful relationships with people. And so there is no quick fix in terms of this is how I can do it. But one of the things that I love about healing work is it's not actually a quick fix anyway. It is about investment of time, investment of energy, investment of resources, investment of heart and spirit. And so, yeah, invest in communities. I think that authentic relationships is key and it's also not necessarily reasonable that that's going to happen right away. And so also, how can you take courses around some of the difficulties around microaggressions or macroaggressions? There's plenty of anti-racist, anti-oppression workshops that you can attend. You can read books like White Like Me, I think is the book is called. Look Up Theorists. You can follow people on social media. There's so much available in terms of like resources for folks to not create harm or not to perpetuate harm, especially in this DEI world world or Jedi world or DEIJ world. There's always new terms for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so there's resources that you can pull from. There are people, it is literally their job to teach people how to deal with internalized oppression, perpetuating oppression, call one of those people up and say, hey, me and a group of my friends want to get together and we want to make sure that we're really informed in terms of the work that we're doing in this world. Can you come and teach us? What does it look like for us to do a refresher every year? Be invested in the education of what you don't know around communities of color and queer folks just as much as you're invested in that education of what you don't know around psychedelics. That's a worthy challenge. I love that. It's more than just taking kind of a textbook approach. I'll study up on people in these communities and see if I can better understand their circumstances by really being in relationship, like you said, and developing those emotional connections to people and getting exposed to the nuances of their experience. That's what can make someone a great therapist or a support person for people in those communities. That's really inspiring. And on that note, the podcast here, Celebrating Women in Psychedelics, the whole purpose of this is really to shine a spotlight on women in the space doing great work, which you certainly are. But you are unique in the sense that you're a Black queer woman doing therapy work in this space. And I'm just curious, what challenges do you experience with that? And what are maybe some of the opportunities there too? I think one challenge that I do face, and this is the challenge in serving my community, is like the lack of education about what even ketamine is, some of the fear around what happens when you engage with psychedelics. And then the opportunities is that I'm the only one that I know of. I don't think that there's anyone else that's doing this work, at least not that has a ketamine clinic, you know? And so the opportunity is that People can actually support someone that is from the community that is very clearly, authentically pouring into the community that is about the community. I think it's a place for people to put their money where their mouth is. A lot of people talk about wanting to decrease the access gap in this field. And there's a lot of theorizing about how to do that. And I'm here to do the action. Call me. Let's develop a plan where you can pour into the nonprofit where we can do a collaborative program or something like that in order to get more clients served, in order to get more therapists trained. There's plenty of opportunities with the nonprofit to be able to do that work. So like, let's do this work. And 
many people have answered the call after one of the other podcasts that I've done. There's someone that gives a portion of, of their sales. They donate that money to the nonprofit. There's someone that did a party and the party was a fundraiser for the nonprofit. There's a lot of creative ways to pour into this space. And so the opportunity is that Doorways gets to be a beacon of light, a place where people can gravitate to in order to pour into communities that really need it. That's amazing. And hopefully you're not the only one in this space. or Hopefully not for long. If I am, hopefully not for long. Exactly. Hopefully not for long. And perhaps there's someone listening right now who's really inspired by your story and wants to do this work and perhaps even specialize with the communities that you do. So what kind of training is available? What would you recommend? And I know there's a lot of different psychedelic assisted therapy programs out there that are all doing great work. And do you not have a launch or support program, a mentorship program that you offer through Doorways? And how could people get involved with that? Yeah, so the launch program is more for general therapy than it is for psychedelic therapy. So I'm going to take those questions and kind of separate them. I think trainings that folks need to do are trainings around anti-oppression work. If they're a person of color, I think they need to look into decolonial theory and places where they can explore decolonial concepts and work. I think connecting through your bloodline and finding indigenous practices of your bloodline or earth-based practices for your bloodline, those practices so fully support the spiritual aspects of the psychedelic work. So yes, you can go to one of the training programs, you can get trained there, but it's not going to give you everything that you need. The training needs to be expansive. It needs to be connecting to some sort of spiritual system that resonates with you so that you can hold the spiritual framework that you need to hold in the therapy setting. It needs to be connected, understanding the ways that the molecules work or the modalities of therapy, but also having a training program maybe that explores different therapeutic modalities that aren't just IFS, no shade to IFS, or that aren't just some of the predominant models that we're using in some of the psychedelic research protocols. What are other models and theories that can be used to support psychedelic work in addition to that? And then coming back to the other part of your question, the launch program is a program that I started to help clinicians of color and queer clinicians learn how to start their own private practice because there's only so many of us. There's only so many of me. I can only serve so many people. I don't have any scarcity around clients. The need is humongous. And I can't train enough people to fill the need, but I will train as many people as I can to be able to have a successful private practice, to be able to understand how to exist so that they're not burning out, and to be able to continue to support the community. My dream is that I train people, and then they take on supervisees, and they train people, and then they take on supervisees, and they train people. And if that ripples out just at those three levels, that's me training three people who are each training three people. And then those 10 people serving the caseload of between 12 to 15 or 20 clients, you know, it's 200 people that are served. And then all of the people that are in relationship to those clients who are being positively impacted by the change in their lives, like that's the dream. That's an exciting vision. And, you know, as you're speaking there, Courtney, the idea that came up for me is I wonder what kind of potential specialized model you may be helping to create in terms of therapy through the work you're doing. I wonder as things evolve in the next five to 10 years, if there will be an even more helpful and nuanced model to serving the communities that you do. 
and that you may be laying down the foundation of that for the work you're doing at Doorways. Yeah, I just had a conversation with a friend about what it looks like to be in leadership and what it looks like to hold power. And I think the model that I'm really excited to champion and the model that I'm really excited to see is a model where people move from the heart. You know, like all of this is hard work for me. People say, how can you do all the things you do? Because I love my people. Because I love my people and I want to see my people heal. I have deep respect for Black people. I will talk about Black resilience all day, Black creativity, innovation. I love my people. And we suffer. And I want us to heal. And so if there's any model that I want folks to replicate, it's how you bring love into the work that you do, how you hold love at the center of everything that you do, and how you move from a place of deep, deep love for the people that you want to serve. And then let the organization build around that. Let your clients, let your staff, let your colleagues build around that, around your love for serving other people. That's profound. No matter what kind of layers or labels you might want to use to describe the work you're doing, if it's heart-centered, it's powerful. So I know one of the big concerns many people have about psychedelic-assisted therapy is the expense. It's currently still very expensive. It's not covered by any forms of insurance or very limited ways with insurance. And I know with Doorways, you have a very unique approach to ensuring that your team is paid well, but also to do what you can to make the therapy as affordable as possible. Would you share a little bit more about that? I mean, as a team of mostly queer, mostly BIPOC folks, those of us with both of those identities or multiple identities, we're supposed to be underpaid. That's what research shows. We're underpaid, we're overworked, and I'm not going to do that. And so when I look at how much is this going to cost, it's expensive. And we really try and play with making it affordable. So we do one-on-one therapy, which is about 5400 And then we break it down from there. So we just introduced the triadic model. So it's two clients and one therapist. So that makes the 5400 cut in half. Then we also do groups of four, which makes the 5400 cut in force. And then if we can fill a group of six, six. So at most, if we can get clients in a group, it'll be about... and that's over the course of nine weeks. So that makes it so much more affordable than the one-on-one fee. And then on top of that, some people still can't afford $1,900 over the course of nine weeks. I was hesitating opening my ketamine clinic because I was so anxious about the price. Because there will be some people that we will serve. And there's so many people that we're not going to be able to serve. And I thought about a lot of different models. I talked to a lot of different people. I talked to colleagues that were in policy and nonprofit world. Like, how do we make this work? Well, you know, guess I'll start a nonprofit. <laughs> and I did. I started a nonprofit. One of our initiatives is to help queer and BIPOC clients be able to afford legal psychedelic assisted therapy by queer and BIPOC providers. So that's really doing everything that we do in doorways, but it's not just doorways. Um, there are other clinics or agencies that we say, do you have BIPOC providers that are providing psychedelic work? Great. As we raise money, we'd love to send you vouchers to be able to support the clients that are coming to those clinicians. And then another one is to raise money for queer and BIPOC providers to be able to be trained in psychedelic-assisted therapy. So we worked with a program recently where I called the program manager and was like, we have some folks that want to get trained. We'd love to do some subsidies. We want to do a 50% voucher for the tuition. And so we did that from some of the funds that we raised in the nonprofit. 
I'm holding a place for research because I just know that there's going to be room and space and money for research. One of my clinicians is very much interested in the research of psychedelics. Uh, there's a placeholder there in the nonprofit for work with research. And then we also do community projects. A Table of Our Own is one of the community projects where they pulled together Black leaders in the psychedelic world. We all had a retreat. They're filming a documentary. They've done a series of interviews. And so they get to send funding through the nonprofit. And so, yeah, it's all about like bringing in resources and letting them disseminate out into the community for the ultimate healing, not just of communities of color because healed communities of color heal everyone. You know, it's all of our teams that's ultimately going to be impacted. Wow, that's fantastic. And what I love about this approach is the stand you're taking for the value of the work you provide. You deserve to be paid well for what you do as well as your team. And also the fact that your clinic is based in the Bay Area, Oakland, California, it's not an inexpensive place to live. So to really hold that line and ensure that you're paid as well as possible for this amazing work that you're doing. And at the same time, all these things you've created, Courtney, to try to reduce the cost for the people that want access to the therapy is so inspiring. So how can people get involved if they want to support this nonprofit work? So our website is www.accessthenumber2doorways.com and the nonprofit is Access the Doorways, Inc. We take check or PayPal. We're working with PayPal to get it so that they don't take a cut of the fee so that we can have all of the funding come in. So yeah, we're always accepting donations and usually those donations immediately go into someone's treatment. So we have a wait list of folks that are already interested in receiving subsidized psychedelic uh, specific therapy. I know plenty of practitioners in the communities and also I've connected to a number of the training programs where I can say, hey, do you guys need some scholarship money? We have some money that we can send your way. And then also these community projects. But I wanted to come back because I went off on a little tangent to your question about pay and like holding the line. And it's very expensive to live in the Bay Area. And one, I don't want to participate in the wage gap, but I also don't want to have a practice that's exploitive of the labor of our providers. And so our providers get paid very well to do the work that they do because they should. For it to be sustainable, this is not easy work, especially the way that we hold the psychedelic assisted therapy work. We pour a lot of ourselves into this work. We pour a lot of ourselves into holding the container and that deserves to be compensated well. And so fair compensation is a way that I, as a practice owner, can make sure that my team is okay, that my team is thriving, not just surviving. I want everybody on my team to thrive. I want them to live in abundance. And when they come into the space, they are fully resourced to be able to support the client in the best way because they don't have to worry about where their next check is going to come from or how they're going to make ends meet. That is a really inspiring model and one I hope gets duplicated nationally. Really amazing, Courtney. And I believe your nonprofit, it's a 501c, correct? All the donations are tax deductible. We'll make sure that the link to that page is listed on the website here and in the liner notes. And I really encourage people to get involved. Even small monthly donations could add up, would they not, to really assisting people long term? There's no donation at all that's too big or too small, especially if you put it on monthly. 
that is so important. I think a lot of us feel sometimes we can't give the amount we want to, so we don't give it all. And $5 a month across a large group of people could add up to enormous amounts of support. So I really encourage everyone listening, get involved and I'll do whatever I can. It's really important, Courtney. I'm just so thrilled with what you've started. And final question I have, if you are looking down the road, say 10 or 15 years, and let's say psychedelic assisted therapy is widely accessible, especially to people in your community. What's the vision of healing that you would hope to see? What do you think might be possible through this work? I love this question because my vision of healing is grandmothers. It's grandmothers in their kitchens, cooking some food. They're preparing the meal. They have some people that are sitting in the backyard and people are journeying. And they come in afterwards and they sit down and they process with her about what they experienced and they get the hugs and the love. And then there's a bowl full of delicious food ready for them. Like that, uh, if that was it, like I, I just want the grandmothers to be able to be like doing this work. It feels like a future kind of going back to the past thing too. Like thinking of like elder women being the women that are like stewarding the space. And sometimes it's not elder women. I see like, young apprentices learning and like practicing and sitting with each other and being in discussion about healing ancestral trauma and family wounds or even if we go 50 years from now ancestral trauma and family wounds are so healed that communities look completely different because everyone has had access to this medicine and maybe it's not even medicine in the world that's that's like healing wounds but maybe it's something else something that's creative or generative it's a, a element of innovation as opposed to something that's healing a sickness we're using psychedelics as technologies to change the future you know to dream into the future so that is an inspiring vision. I especially love the grandmother element. <laughs> Being someone who's, you know, such an advocate for feminine energy, that is so compelling. No doubt through the work you're doing, your team's doing, and the opportunities that are coming, that will become a reality. And I really acknowledge you. You are a trailblazer. I'm beyond honored to have you as a guest on this podcast. I thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for like creating the space. Thank you for seeing and feeling into it. I really appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.